I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown. He rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Lord, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? that each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat's hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed for its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can withstand it? So we're going to be reading uh, Revelation 7 this time. 144,000 sealed. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the serpents of our God. Then I heard the numbers of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. 
from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Good morning. When was the last time you had a nightmare? When was the last time you had a nightmare that was so vivid uh, you woke up and you were sure that it was real. When was the last time you had a nightmare like that? Maybe you look like one of these pictures, someone who sat up in bed, someone who's nervous, someone who is so concerned that what they've just dreamt is actually true. They think the, uh, the accident that they dreamt about actually happened. They are so relieved that the person they thought they'd lost actually is still alive, that the monster that's attacking you was actually in your imagination and not at the front door. When was the last time you had a nightmare? You can wake up in a cold sweat and you are convinced that what you dreamt about, that's not true, but you feel as if it was real. Now, here's John. John is writing in a similar context. He's writing to these little communities, maybe 20 or 30 groups of uh, people, small groups in the uh, what is now modern day Turkey. And, and he's sending them this book. Um, of what he has heard and what he has seen, what's been revealed to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants to communicate it in such a way just to prepare the Christians who are about to face a nightmare. A nightmare of persecution is on the way and he wants to prepare them for it. And what he offers them is this continuing vision that we are studying week on week. But it's a vision not of nice dreams that he's had, that he wants to give them some sweet memory but he wants to communicate to them the heavenly reality that's been revealed to him that is absolutely true, that is firm and real, so that 
they will be fortified and prepared for the nightmare that they are about to see and experience themselves. I mean, here's the reality that we've seen from chapters four and chapter five already. The reality is that the creator of the whole world and Jesus, the Lamb of God, has already won the victory at the cross. And that means that the victory that has been won at the cross means that everyone who belongs to Jesus who've been rescued by the lamb, that's the language of chapter four and chapter five, have been rescued by him and they are protected from all harm. There's nothing that can touch them. There's nothing that can uh, affect their lives into eternity. Great suffering will happen. But those that belong to Jesus are eternally safe. They will find themselves in the future surrounding God's throne. The picture of 24 elders is symbolic of the church and Revelation chapter four, God's people will be around his throne, enjoying and worshipping him, focused upon him for all eternity. Christianity is about joy, but there will be the reality of suffering. This uh, reality is there in chapter six and on into chapter seven. But before we get there, it's appropriate at this time in the book just to hit pause and to think to help us understand what will come about how John is writing. He's writing symbolically. Let me show you a book from uh, your childhood and mine. It tells us how to read. Do you remember this book? It's a simple sentence where we all began and we learned how the cat sat on the mat or on a mat. When you write in English, you write from left to right. When you write in Hebrew, you write from uh, right to left. When you write in Chinese, you write in script from top to bottom. We always write in order. We always write with one thing in the author's mind. It's called authorial intent. But when John is writing in symbolism, it's not linear. It's not going from one thing to the next. It's a bit more like a symphony of music. John writes with four or five notes going on at the same time. He's not writing just looking at history with one thing in his mind. He's writing symbolically and he's writing in a symbolic sequence. So when we read of horses in Revelation chapter six, John is not writing in such a way so that the Christians in the first century are expecting to look out of their window and see a black rider galloping or trotting by and followed by a red and a white and a, a pale. He's not writing in that way. He's writing symbolically. He's painting like a surreal artist, like uh, Salvador Dali, or he's composing a symphony with a number of things happening at the same time if we think about it musically. That's how we need to understand the book of Revelation. It's symbolic. Sometimes it's out of sequence. But we need to get into chapter six and chapter seven. With that as a background, John is shown by the Lord Jesus, chapter six, verse one, what will soon take place. Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, sat on the throne of God, is about to unravel the scroll, the title deeds of history that only he has authority to open. That's Revelation chapter five. And our heads are going to spin this morning, as we see, not in a two inch book or not on Wikipedia, but in one chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter six, we're going to see the whole of human history. It's about suffering. Revelation seven is about sealing and it's about safety. That's what all of history is about. Suffering, sealing and eternal safety. Let's look at Revelation chapter six with me, please. It's about suffering and it's about all of human history. 
In verses 1 to 8, we have the whole of history revealed to us, but it's done symbolically through four horsemen, four horses. It's a very famous passage from the Bible. So look at verse 2 and look at what the Lamb of God reveals to John, I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, at this point, many Christians disagree. Many Christians disagree about the purpose and understanding of Revelation chapter six. And many people disagree. Many Christians disagree about the identity of the first rider. Many people see on the rider of the white horse a connection to Revelation chapter 19, where we see Jesus named and astride a white horse going out in conquest and they say because Jesus is in chapter 19 Jesus must be in chapter 6. I don't think that's the case. I think what's happening here when you look at the near context of Revelation chapter 6 and you see all the fours of uh, four winds, four angels in the beginning of chapter 7 and when you see a unity of the four horsemen in chapter 6 I think the first rider is a representation of the kingdoms of the earth. It's uh, supposed to be a shadow, an echo of Jesus's true kingship that we see in Revelation chapter nine. But but here in chapter six, I think the first rider is a, a symbol, a representative of all the kingdoms and rulers of the earth who think they can through conquest and through conquering that they, they can establish a name and a place for themselves in history. They can establish their rule and their reign. So I think this rider throughout history can look like the king of Persia. He can look like the Pharaoh of Egypt. He can take the form of the king of Assyria on Babylon. He can take the uh, form of a, a, a czar in, in Russia. He can be symbolically represented by the Third Reich in Germany that said it would last for a thousand years. I think Jesus is saying this is what you will see as a thread of history. There will be great empires and rulers, great kings and queens who will take the thrones of the earth. But then verse four, we see another rider who is astride a red horse that's symbolic of war to bring strife and take away peace from the earth. The third rider is seen in verse five. It's a, a tragic image of scarcity and economic inequality. Look at verse six with me. I heard the sound of a voice from the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a day's wages, three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. This is talking about terrible inflation, a quart of wheat for a day's wages. This means the rich get what they want and the poor go without. Up to date, this would be uh, going into Sainsbury's or Audi or Lidl or Waitrose and uh, paying for a loaf of bread, but with a 50 pound note. It's the basic things of life being treated like a luxury. And notice, do not damage the oil and the wine. This is the wealthy, the rich of the world who won't live simply so that others can simply live. They want what's theirs and they don't care about anybody else. And the fourth horse is this horrible, pale, greeny, yellow color. This picture of death, verse eight, is death followed by hell because of sword and famine, plague and beast. It's a picture of history in just a few verses where God lets the world do its worst because of sin and wanting to overthrow his loving rule and reign. And this is not just out there. This is in our lives. 
Can you not hear the hoofs of the horses, not just in history, but in our homes as well? The struggles we have with inequality, the reality of death, even in the last week or so. And Jesus is revealing this is what history is all about. I'm in complete sovereign control over the four edges of the earth. But because of sin, these four realities will happen. The great themes of the world order and history that are under God's loving rule and reign. This is what will happen between Jesus's ascension and his return, the time of tribulation until Jesus returns in loving rule and reign. Picture of the kings and queens of the earth, the reality of death and famine and of inequality. In spite of our best efforts, mankind will never find peace. There will be no end to war. Mankind will never establish economic justice. There will always be poverty until the end. We'll never, despite our best efforts, do away with hunger. There will be famine to the end. We'll never be able to, despite wonderful advancements in medical technology and research, we'll never be able to do away with death. People will be dying to the end. And so as the fifth seal is open in verse 10, people cry out the martyrs who have owned the name of Jesus unto death, cry out, how long, O Lord? How long before you listen to the cry of our lives that we've poured out as an offering on your altar? How long before you vindicate us? How long before that day that's coming in the future where your cosmic power will be seen as you roll up the heavens as a scroll, as you move mountains under your authoritative word and desire? One day in the future, verses 12 to 16, this awe-filled day of the Lord, one day money will count for absolutely nothing. Status will be insignificant. The greatest to the least of humanity will be running for the mountains, longing to be hid from the awe-filled gaze of the one who sat on the throne. On that day, Jesus will go through the heavens and the earth, looking for every scrap of evil and injustice and death and darkness, and he will be done with it. Jesus will return, not as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but Jesus in his holy justice. And so the question that can be heard like a pin drop is who can stand in that day? Who can stand in that day? Surely the seriousness of this passage is not lost in your eye. No one can stand. No one can stand before a God of purity and justice, of divine love and holiness. No one can stand before him. What a sobering chapter Revelation 6 is. No one can stand. Unless, chapter 7, you're sealed. Unless, chapter 7, you're sealed. Notice chapter 7, we see this word sealed. The four angels, the four winds, the four horsemen. It's symbolic of the earth. It's the number four, the four corners of the earth. This uh, word seal that we came across in chapter five, who can open the seal? No one is on earth can do it. No one in the heavens can do it. John is crying with tears until Jesus, the Lamb of God, is found. He is the only one in all of history 
in the whole of cosmic history who has divine authority to open the title deeds of history, the seven sealed scroll. Now we're familiar with the word seal, aren't we, from history? We can see on the screen, there's a, a waxy seal on an envelope and it bears someone's insignia that's impressed upon the molten wax and it's used there for security. No one can open the seal. No one can open the letter. But it's also used there for ownership. You can see to whom the object, the scroll or the letter belongs to because of the insignia that's impressed upon it. And that word is used in a different way as we transition from the sobriety of six into the safetyness and sealedness of chapter seven. It's about security and ownership. And we see here all of God's people represented in three ways. The first one is in verse three. God's people are those who are his servants, those who bear his seal. But then in verses four to eight and following in verse nine, we have two different descriptions of what looks like two different people. But I don't think they are. What you have here is two camera angles one from the perspective of God, one from the perspective of John, as he, he sees what he has heard described. Look at verses four to eight. You have this uh, stylized number of people. John hears into heaven. He hears that the number 12 is so symbolic, 12,000 groups of 12 tribes. Now, why does Jesus reveal to John his people stylized in this way? Because here, from God's perspective, you see the Israel of God. That's uh, the words of Paul from the book of Galatians. You have the Israel of God. It's a perfect number of the number 12, the church, stylized, perfect, times by a thousand. You have 12,000 times 12, 144,000. You have, just as in every other number in the book of Revelation, a symbolic representation of the people of God. And here you have the Israel of God. That doesn't mean that these are just Jewish people. We'll see that in a moment because we see from God's perspective, this is his divinely appointed people, the people of his promise, the people of his covenant. This is the Israel of God who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is his covenant people from the Old Testament. And even in the Old Testament, you saw Jew and a few Gentiles engrafted into the Israel of God. That's, that's one perspective. But then verse nine and following, you have a human perspective up till now. John has just heard, but now you have a different camera angle, not from God's perspective, but from John's perspective. And now he sees, he sees verses nine to 12, these wonderful sentences, a great multitude that no one can count, not even if you got into um, a drone and you saw over a great crowd at an inauguration day, which numbers can be manipulated. Here they won't be. This is John who's overwhelmed with how many people from, not just from Israel, but from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation under God, praising the one who has ransomed them. Now, why is this significant? This is not just a, a teaching lesson where we want to understand the Bible. This is about you and me. This is about us. This is about us praising God for what he's done in his son. Remember chapter six? Who can stand in the day of the wrath of God? No one. Unless you are sealed. 
unless you are sealed. The only people who can, who can stand in that day when Jesus returns in awe, saturated might and majesty and purity and holiness and justice are those that he has sealed. We're not there because of our righteousness. We're not there because of our goodness. We're not there because of our efforts. We're not there because of our giving and service. We're there because God, by his grace, has sealed us. We belong to him. And so we're eternally safe and secure. There's a story that's told of Nathan Cole. Nathan Cole was a, a farmer in Massachusetts. And in 1740, as part of the Great Awakening, he went to hear the great preacher, George Whitfield, preach. And in his testimony, Nathan Cole, a simple farming man, said, in that moment, hearing George Whitfield preach, my hearing him gave me a heart wound. And by God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. We're all there thinking that we can please God by our efforts, by our energies, by our service, by our good deeds, and well as our not doing certain bad deeds. But we are safe because we are sealed. We're part of that heavenly number that no one can count, that perfect number, the people of God, the servants of God that are sealed by God because of his grace and his mercy is not our own righteousness. It's God's divine good pleasure. So let me ask you, are you safe and secure and sealed for that day, that fearful day? Are you protected? Are you trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ? The only people that need to be afraid of the wrath of God on that coming day are only those people who are determined to resist the call of his divine love. Have you heard his call? Are you divine, defying his divine, uh, divine love? I mean, how should we respond? I mean, I want a message about parenting. I want a message about COVID. I want a message about anxiety and fear and failure and career and money. There's time for all of those in the life of a church but how should we respond to the fact that God has sealed so many of us well how do you respond if you're in northern France last weekend when storm Alex hit and it destroyed home after home and town after town was lost to the floods how do you respond if you're kept safe in that day you're thankful aren't you you rejoice how do you respond like in our home when we had to go for a COVID test for one of our children last weekend and the result came back negative? We're thankful. Friends, if you know that salvation, verse 10 of chapter 7, is of our God, if you're one of those people with palm branches clothed in the righteousness of God, if you're around his throne praising him, how do you respond? The sign that you've understood the gospel is that thankfulness is part of your DNA. You want to praise God for who he is and for what he's done in rescuing you, that you're sealed. And because you're sealed, you are safe forever. That's what this passage is about. Suffering, chapter six, beginning of chapter seven, you're sealed if you're a Christian, relying on the work of Jesus Christ. And that means if you're sealed, finally, that means you're safe forever. On Wednesday, just past, I stood over a graveside and I said, Christianity is about hope. 
Christianity is about hope. And we looked at Romans chapter eight when we returned to the King's Center to celebrate a life well lived. Christian hope is not about pie in the sky when you die by and by. It's not about uh, flying on a cloud. It's not about disembodied consciousness in some way. It's no hope at all. And so the next question that John hears is in verse 13 of chapter seven. Who can stand chapter six? Who are these people? Chapter seven, verse 13. Who, who are the crowd? Verse nine, carrying palm branches, clothed in white, shouting praises to God and to the lamb. And verse 13, who are these people? Verse nine. And, and where have they come from? Verse 13. Who are these people surrounding the throne of God and praising him? God has said to Johnny through the angel who spoke to Jesus, chapter one, verse one, he's passed on that he can see in heaven this vast multitude of 144,000, this vast multitude from every tribe, tongue and nation. Who are these people? The people John sees because of the revelation of Jesus Christ are those whom God has rescued from slavery to sin so that he can st they can stand in his presence the presence of his divine son. And look at the precious promises there are in verses 15, 16, and 17. This is what God has done in Jesus, and this is what he will do. Verse 15, in heaven, Jesus has and is and will shelter his beloved sealed people with his presence. He will pitch his tent over them. It is literally the word tabernacle. They will be safe forever. Verse 16, he will protect and provide for his sealed people forever. They will hunger and thirst no more. And this wonderful role reversal of the divine son of God, the lamb of God, who is now the good shepherd of his people, the shepherd who leads his people to springs of living water, whose heart is so full of mercy for his people who so longs to glorify his father that he came down from the throne of God to the cross of God so that he might rescue a people for his father. And one day he promises to wipe away every tear from every eye. I've been meditating on that this week. Who is it that wipes away the tears from our cheeks? More often than not, it's mums. Mums who get up close. I mean, Jesus could have used any image to describe the loss of pain and suffering. He could have said suffering will be no more in the end, but that's remote. Instead, he chooses to relate the actual relationship we have with Jesus Christ, the maker of the universe, in a very personal way. I'm going to wipe away the tears off your cheeks as a mother does to their son or daughter. I'm going to be so intimate with you in the future in heaven. My love is going to envelop you. It's going to surround you. It's going to be so near to you that you can feel my embrace. No desire in your heart will be lacking. No longing that's been good and God-centered will be left wanting. Nothing will be unfulfilled in your dreams and desires that relate to seeing me. No matter how lofty those dreams are and aspirations are, nothing will be disappointed that is God-centered. And how is that possible? The gospel tells us so, that the shepherd died for his sheep. The shepherd 
was lost and plunged into deep darkness so that we can live in the light. I will take their cross, Father, so that they can wear my crown. I will take their punishment so they can have my reward. I will die instead of them, says Jesus. Yes, they're sheep. Yes, they're foolish. Yes, they're rebellious. But this is the reason that they can be my glory, because I will die in their place and they'll be raised to life again to endure my place. That's the gospel. And that's the reason that there can be joy, because now in heaven, there is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who died in our place and who is seated now in our place. So that one day he will wipe away every tear from every cheek. In the summer, I went to Specsavers. Yes, I have got new glasses, but the first time around in July, I was given the wrong prescription. I kind of had double vision. I had eye strain. It was pretty painful. I went back. And like the man that I am, I just got a new version of the old thing that was working just fine. I just got new lens or new uh, frames for my new lenses. Having double vision can be very dangerous, especially if you're driving a car. But in this passage, I think John wants us to understand that we need spiritual double vision. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. In chapter six and chapter seven, as we put them together, we need spiritual double vision vision so that we are sober in this world but we're hope-filled in our sobriety we want double vision so we can look at this world with understanding and the history that's past and the history that's still to come we need to see clearly the realities of earth that's chapter six but also to keep us going to focus our hearts and minds and affections on the priority of the king and the kingdom we need to see the trueness of the unseen realities of heaven we need to develop the spiritual double vision so it can transform our lives so that we can be hope-filled in 2020 in the year of COVID. We need the eye of faith. We need the eye of faith so that we can see beyond earth to heaven and know its reality in our lives. We need the eye of faith, double vision, so we can look beyond and see the reality of what is yet unseen. We need double vision so we can look beyond suffering to glory and beyond history to eternity because in that day because the bible says so jesus will stoop down and he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes tears of sadness tears of loss tears of regret tears of omission the maker of the universe will stoop down and wipe away every tear from every eye